Well, welcome to Microgreens for growers and consumers. Today's episode, we are getting the opportunity to speak with Gina, um, whom I stumbled across as I was having a nice relaxing day, reading a bunch of scientific journals about microgreens. It was just mm-hmm. the highlight of my life. Um, <laughs> not really. So at the moment where I thought I couldn't read one more study about talking in circles to then tell me absolutely nothing, um, I figured there had to be a better way. So I looked at the study and I saw, well, Gina's name and that she was from Arkansas. And I thought, well, let me just call because the study was like, I think what published last year um, or this year. Yeah, it was my thesis. So it, um, so I defended my master's thesis in February. And so that's when they put it on the library website is around that time. Yeah, so it was, So it was pretty recent, so I was like, you know what, let me just take the chance that I can call someone and just ask some questions. So I did just that. I called the university and they were like, well, we can't give you her information. We don't know, you could be a stalker. I'm like, okay, a vegetable stalker, I am. Um, So they contacted her and then she contacted me back and then we met. And so we thought we'd give you guys all an opportunity to ask some questions um, and find out about some things about microgreens and talk to somebody who maybe has a better understanding than we do. Um, And I mean, we as in sometimes the growers um, and I'm lumping us together, have a one understanding of what we think should be, but the science and the scientists have a complete other thing because they're answering separate questions. We're doing separate features, even though it seems like we're all together. So I posted in the Florida Microgreen Growers Group and the Dehydrated Salt Group questions for Gina. So Gina, are you ready? I am ready for you. So they have some questions here for you. And I'm just going to kind of read the questions and um, just kind of go through it that way. And hopefully it won't be too long and, and too, uh, too troubling for you. So Gina, question one is from Kelly and she wants to know, well, the same thing everybody wants to know, probably. What do you got to say about the nutrients of microgreens? Just in general, what do I have to say? Yes. Um, well, so the going, the, the, the running theory with microgreens uh, is that they are more nutrient dense than the large vegetable that the seed would eventually turn into if you didn't cut it off at the, at the surface of the grow media. So um, the reason why that, that was a running hypothesis and um, is that in the seed, Um, So it's kind of like when, you know, a baby is growing in its mother, the mother provides all that nutrition. So the seed is a little bit like, only a little bit like um, that kind of scenario where the the seed actually provides the initial nutrients that that seedling needs to to grow. So um, as the plant gets bigger, uh, that initial amount of nutrition is just spread over more of the plant's body. But... The, um, the, the plant at that point also starts drawing nutrients from the growing medium. So um, it wasn't really a cut and dry question that for sure microgreens are gonna be more nutritious than the vegetable counterpart. So it was studied in research. And so it turned out that um, in some cases, yes, it actually is more nutrient dense depending on the variety and the vitamin and the environment and a whole lot of other factors. So there's no easy answer but it looks like nutritionally microgreens are a very nutritious food and may even be more so than the, the big vegetables. So that's just kind of the general impression. 
Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if there's any that are less nutrient dense than the adults. I'm yeah, it just, it totally depends. Um, I think that in, so I had a microgreen fact sheet that I made for, um, well, I probably should explain a little bit about who I am. Well, yeah, who are you? What do you do? I forgot to mention that. Yes, I'm, I'm writing I'm cool. to the science. I'm all, for, I'm all for it. I always make that mistake too because I'm a big nerd. So I'm like, science, ah! And then I forget to just say like, hi, nice to meet you. So um, so uh, I'm Gina Misra. I did my master's in um, molecular biology from the University of Arkansas. And how I ended up with microgreens is kind of a long story. But before I went to grad school, I was working with my husband and two of our close friends to do a little microgreen uh, business of our own. Um, which was part of a nonprofit that my husband and his colleagues started in 2009. So I can get into explaining what that's all about if you're interested. But we have a little microgreen project that's a nonprofit. We do grow and sell microgreens, but we also do a lot of education, like science education and outreach with schools. And so me doing this interview with you and talking to other growers about the science of microgreens and nutrition is kind of part of our organization's mission, which is to um, not only uh, provide good quality food, but to also educate people about science. So, um, so kind of a win-win here, because then, you know, microgreen growers want to know a lot more about the science. Uh, and then the way that the molecular biology thing factors in is uh, that I actually did my master's thesis on microgreen food safety. So uh, when you study molecular biology, you study uh, bacteria and viruses and their genetics and how they interact with their environment. And so that was more of the toolkit that I used to study the problem of microgreen food safety. Uh, and my thesis was about uh, differences between different types of grow media uh, and whether like there were certain growing medium uh, media that provide or that, uh, that are less safe than others in terms of food safety, like they increase the risk. Like, so biostrate and hemp um, might actually harbor uh, and allow bacteria to grow more than soil and cocoa coir. That was kind of the big conclusion from my thesis, and we did publish that in a scientific journal. So, so that's kind of how I ended up here, and Lisa found my thesis, which had those results in it. So that's that's how this all happened. It sure is. And if they want to find that study, they can find it. I found it, I believe, on ResearchGate. But if you email or message one of us, we'll get it to you. That's not a problem. Um, and, and a side note, just talking about how you find research like that, how I sit with binders and binders of research is I basically went to college and I paid a lot of money for a degree. I don't know how much you paid for yours, but I paid a lot for mine. Well, actually, I didn't pay a lot for it. I'm still working it off. But they give you access to an, a university email. Well, you can always use that email for the rest of your life. So that email doesn't go away after you graduate. And a lot of people think it does. But when you go into like ResearchGate and some of the, the journals, they require a university email address to give you more access. So most of us already have those. Um, so just remember, you can always use yours. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because I know mine is good for two years. And I think I may not be able to use the University of Arkansas system after that. But I guess I'll find out because I haven't been graduated for two years yet. So we'll see. Oh, um, some time. I haven't graduated a long time and I can still use yeah. mine. So it might just depend on the school, different schools, different rules. I know when I did undergrad at Penn State, they kicked me out of the system after six months. So it just it really depends. But uh, also Google Scholar is um, a search engine for scientific papers. So if you're Googling stuff, 
in uh, regular Google or in another search engine like DuckDuckGo or something like that, you'll only see like uh, blog posts and maybe the occasional scientific paper or news articles you'll see. But if you go to scholar.google.com, you can actually search only scientific journals and patents. And so that gets you like, and not all of the full text is available, um, but sometimes Google will find some place where someone has uploaded a PDF. And that's why they sometimes come up on ResearchGate because uh, authors will host their papers on ResearchGate, which is dubious because sometimes that violates copyright, but it's the whole, the whole world of, of sharing journal articles is a whole big other conversation once we get into another time. But yeah, scholar.google.com is a good way to find scientific studies. Well, I'll put that in the notes too, so that they have it. So, well, we have question number two, and that comes from Daniel. And he was asked specifically by a customer, how much of the nutrient value of microgreens are actually metabolized by our bodies? I, I, uh, I really like this question because um, it's just a scientifically interesting one. So, and it's also funny because you can't really say for sure, like, okay, 30% or 40% or 100% because it varies by the person, by the nutrient and by the food. So, I mean, if you think about it in common sense, like what your body does with what you eat depends completely on your health. So how well does your body work? Like, so that's gonna be a factor already on its own. Um, and then the foods themselves have different chemical makeups. So microgreens or lettuce or an apple or a steak, like they all are different chemically. So how your body breaks all those things down and uses the nutrients um, varies. So we're just concerned about microgreens. There are studies that people can do where you actually simulate the environment of the stomach where you have the right pH and you have the right enzymes you add artificially. And given what we know about how the intestines and the stomach work, we can make some approximations as to like how much uh, of the nutrition in a microgreen or in any food product for that matter uh, is bioavailable. So that's kind of, I think what people are really asking is like, I don't know how much your body's going to use, but theoretically what is usable is called bioavailable. So um, there's a couple papers that I looked up because I saw this question ahead of time. Um, so this is the tough one to actually answer off the top of my head. <laughs> so some people have studied this in leafy greens. And so a lot of leafy greens contain these compounds called oxalates and phytates and um, they're, and then also dietary fibers too can kind of like pull, they, they grab onto minerals and make it harder for your body to absorb the minerals like calcium and magnesium uh, and things like that that you need for your health. So microgreens actually have lower amounts of those oxalates and phytates than like big kale or big spinach or big lettuce. So um, in a sense, it may be that the minerals in microgreens are more available depending on what else you eat them with. So if you're having microgreens alone and you eat those, that might be more bioavailable than if you eat microgreens mixed with a bunch of big greens, for example. But that has not really been studied. So what I just said there is like a hypothesis. So you could test that and, you know, with your simulated stomach. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's a, uh, there's a paper if people want it, I can try to get a hold of it, but they actually did do like a sort of a simulated stomach where they had a solution and they put peps in and some other enzymes and then 
um, drop the pH to where it was close to what it would be in your digestive system. So, so maybe microgreens have slightly more bioavailable minerals. As far as the vitamins and the phytochemicals, those get absorbed by totally different pathways than minerals. And the answer to that question would depend on the vitamin. And I haven't found any studies about that. Huh. Oh, speaking of studies, where do I want to get my greens tested? Okay, so here's, this is the big question of the hour. And so you could go with private labs. Okay. So you have, there's a lot of them. Um, Eurofins is a big one, E-U-R-O-F-I-N-S. I know they're a, a fixture at food safety conferences. Um, there's also Intertech, uh, Moreau Nutrisciences. They've been at food science conferences. I've seen them before. RL Food Testing, Medallion. So there's lots of private companies that will do this. They're really expensive. And the reason for that is that they primarily, their customers are people that have prepared food products that they're trying to get a nutrition label made for to comply with FDA regulations. So microgreens are voluntary um, because they're considered a conventional food. They don't need a label. So like when you go to the grocery store and you buy like a head of lettuce or apples, they don't have that nutrition facts thing stuck to them like that your cereal box would because they're not required to. So microgreens fall under the category of like lettuce and apples, not cereal. So if you want to know, uh, if you want to get a nutrition label for your microgreens, um, like those products, you're totally allowed to, but you're gonna pay for it because they also develop that label for you in uh, accordance with the FDA. So if you want a cheap and quick and dirty way of doing it, you can use this thing called a, a refractometer, which is for measuring bricks, B-R-I-X. And that's like a field, uh, like sort of quick way of assessing just the general uh, nutrient density of a, fr a fresh food product. It doesn't tell you anything about individual vitamins and minerals. It's really just like it, it treats your food product like uh, a glass of water with a bunch of stuff in it. So bricks will tell you how much of your microgreen is water and how much of it is not water. So there is a strong correlation between bricks and nutrient density. So that's like sometimes a quick way that agriculture people will check things in the field. Um, so wait, we can do something on our own in the field. That's cool. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of YouTube videos out there about how to do, how to measure bricks uh, and the refractometer is not prohibitively expensive. Um, but, uh, and actually I saw one today that I was just looking, I wonder if anyone's done this with microgreens and someone has a video for how to do it with microgreens. So um, that's pretty cool. I had no idea. Uh, and then the quick, uh, sort of the in-between way of doing this is to contact a university extension office and try to figure out if they have a soil testing lab or some kind of agricultural forage testing lab or um, anything like that because they would be even though they're not designed really for doing this kind of thing they would have the right equipment to do that um, because they would do it for animal feed and when i did my research um, i had got my grow media tested at one of those labs and they weren't necessarily outfitted for testing grow media either. So I had to do some extra processing steps to get it into a form that they could use. Um, so any uh, university lab that has a fee for service um, and they have the uh, equipment like an ICPMS, that's the, the sort of common way of testing minerals. 
and UV Viz and HPLC. So if they have those uh, types of laboratory equipment, then they can probably do the vitamins and the phytochemicals and the minerals. So you'll have to ask your extension office. Uh, I am potentially thinking about doing a research project by collecting microgreen samples from different farms and looking at sort of the difference between fresh and freeze-dried and dehydrated and uh, if those processes change the nutrient levels. So you could always contact me. I am talking to someone at our institute right now about how that testing could be done. We're kind of going back and forth about it. So if you want to get involved in that, you can email me uh, or email Lisa and she can get you my info. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of the long answer. There's private labs, there's bricks, and then there's uh, universities. Huh, well, that's awesome to know. And definitely, you know, we're, <laughs> I'm definitely all about watching and getting more things tested. So then we don't actually need to test our microgreens. So basically, I, I think a lot of people want to do it because I think, in my opinion, people want to do it because they want to say the claim, right? Like, I think like a lot of people are like, we can cure cancer. We can make you see better. Like we can make you do all these things. But the reality is, even if you can prove that uh, it has a high amount of any any specific nutrient, you still can't make that claim, right? Do you want to explain to them why? Yeah. So this is fun. Uh, Lisa and I had a chat about this last week, um, which kind of inspired this conversation that you're seeing now. So. Um, this is another one of those science questions that doesn't have a short answer. So sorry about that in advance. Um, <laughs> so when you want to say that, um, for example, we're going to pretend that instead of a microgreen, it's a vitamin supplement. So if you want to say this vitamin supplement is good for, um, let's see, irritable bowel syndrome, for example, you'd have to actually do a medical study where you give a group of people with IBS the supplement and then the, the other group of placebo and then you have some kind of measurement that you will take at the end which is like for IBS maybe it would be uh, inflammation um, you know just different intestinal measurements that I don't know how to do because I'm not a medical provider or a, a medical lab person um, so you would have some kind of metric at the end that you would go for to determine if the supplement that you gave the person actually improved the condition or not. So uh, the same would be true for a diet or a food product. If you wanted to be able to make a claim that microgreens are good for this disease or that disease, you would have to actually know that from a study, like a controlled study to be able to say that. And also the FDA does have a lot of rules about what you can and can't say uh, foods and supplements do for that reason. So if you're making a, like a vague claim that this is boosts the immune system, that's kind of a meaningless statement as far as the FDA is concerned, because what does boosting the immune system mean? You have to have a way to measure that. So you can say sort of vague things like that. Um, but to go so far as to say broccoli microgreens are good for cancer patients, like that's a big claim that you definitely don't want to make because you don't want to lead someone to think that they can forego their medical treatment and use broccoli microgreens instead. Now, whether you could eat broccoli microgreens while undergoing cancer treatment, that would be a perfectly healthy dietary decision to make. And so you could encourage clients, uh, like at least let them know that these food products are, are healthy and they are a great addition to a healthy diet. They're not medicine. So you have to make sure that you're not making a medical claim 
Um, and uh, as far as like what we can tell clients about nutrition of microgreens, you can tell them what's in them and we can tell them what we know about what those vitamins do. And then you can make your own sort of guesses as to like, well, this is high in this particular nutrient. So given that we know that this nutrient is helpful for these body functions, this is a good way to get more of that nutrient in your diet. And that is what we can tell people, I think, responsibly, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of times, um, you know, even me, I like to get excited, especially when specifically talking about broccoli, because I think that some of the, the things you can circumvent about broccoli are pretty telling. And um, I just think, I agree that nobody should ever change their medical treatment, but I think that someone should definitely want, there should be certain things you'd want to add into, in with. And I think that using food sometimes to maybe supplement that, would, I don't see any negative downside to it. So yeah, I if, if people want to do whatever they want with their medical treatment, that's their, their freedom to do that. But you don't want to make the mistake of giving people medical advice. Right, and that, having yourself be wrong and then you, you get Yeah, you get into kind of some hairy territory there where you're, you know, you're making a what's called a structure function claim. And that's like a FDA definition for saying like this thing does this for this specific condition. So they have all kinds of rules about what words are okay to say, like so... Uh, like a high fiber food, there's like a very specific definition for calling something high fiber or a, a good source of this. Like they have all these sort of codified language that uh, if you're gonna start doing that, you should be aware of what, what you can and can't say. So um, we should stay I, think, I think the microgreen people need to just stick with saying like, oh, they're high in these nutrients because we can measure that in studies. And then, you know, let people do their own research as far as like, oh, well, I want more vitamin C in my diet or I want more vitamin E in my diet. So I'm going to have this sunflower microgreen because it has a lot of vitamin E in it. That's we can tell people what's in them, but we don't know at this point what what that means for different medical conditions. Gotcha. All right. Well, question. Let's see. Oh, question four comes from Christine. And she says, is there value in supplementing the water with something like ocean solutions? Or is it true that microgreens get all their nutrients from the seed and the sun so they don't need the nutrients? So in the beginning of the call, I did talk about how the seedling gets everything it needs from the seed. So that's mostly true. So it turns out I was chatting with a, bot a botanist in our organization this morning just to verify this because I wasn't sure if there was a moment in the plant's life cycle where it like switches over from seed nutrient to soil and how many days that takes. So of course depends on the variety. But <laughs> what happens in plants at that stage is like the hormones that trigger it to germinate um, there's like one that goes down as it grows and one that goes up as it grows. So that exchange of those two hormones is also responsible for it switching over from using that seed nutrition to using what's in the growing media. And so basically the seed is always using both, but it's just more at the beginning and, and then it's much more switched over to the grow media towards maturity and eventually it's all grow media because the seed is gone so um so even at even at day one it uses a little bit of 
nutrient from the soil that if you put a, like oceans in it, it would use a little bit of it, but not probably a lot because it's going to pull from the seed. And as it keeps going throughout the days, it might pull a little bit more and more. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it's just, it's a, there's not like a moment where it's like, okay, now it's grow media. It's, it's a definitely, it's like a gradual thing. It's kind of like weaning off your, weaning your kid off the bottle, you know? So <laughs> I always make these analogies with babies, even though plants and humans don't have all that much in common. There are some like creepy analogies you can make. But, um, but yeah, for the most part, I mean, so if you, you can kind of test this by like looking up hydroponic microgreen growing protocols, um, because there's nutrients you have to put in that solution, meaning that water is not enough to grow microgreens hydroponically. So some nutrients are probably helpful. Um, and it does use what's in the soil. So if you just grow them on biostrate and uh, that sort of corn-based white pad that a lot of hydroponic growers use mm -hmm. uh, versus potting soil or peat or coco coir or something like that that has a little bit more of something in it. And neither of those things are really nutrient dense at all, but you will get a little bit better yield um, in, the, um, in the soil or the coir as opposed to biostrate just in water. You do have to add something to that water. So, so yeah, if you want, I mean, it depends on if you add, uh, if you want to add fertilizer and see, like really the only way to know if it's gonna make a meaningful improvement in your product is to just get some and try it. Um, that's really the, it, this is all experiential learning here, but I do know from my own research that I definitely saw that Biostrate needed something and soil didn't as much. So they are using something. I would agree with that statement because my uh, my crops on Biostrate did never grew as well as my crops in soil did. Yeah, they they're shorter. They're yep. like yeah. So so for sure, if you're using some of those felt pads, you might need to add some nutrients and you might get some better yields. All right. Her next question is: Is there a value in the full spectrum lights versus the LED lights? let's talk lights yeah lights lights are fun i like this <laughs> um yeah so lights uh so in general the benefit of the full spectrum is that it provides the red and the blue that standard leds are usually deficient in uh the only difference is some some of the standard leds that are marketed as cool white do have like a lot of blue but still not enough red so um and the red and the blue light are pretty important um, they each play a different role in the plant growth um, cycle. So, um, you know, when the plant's at the bottom of the forest floor and it's reaching for light and there's tree overhead. So just kind of imagine that they're not in your indoor farm and that they're in like nature. So they're growing out of the ground and it's dim. And so all they're getting is really like some passive red light and far red light that um, will trigger it to grow. And then you have blue light, which is like the uh, the signal from there being enough light. So, so the colors in the spectrum, you might see it as white, but there's all different wavelengths in there that are part of the visual spectrum uh, or the visible spectrum. And um, all of those play a different role in plant growth. So having the full spectrum gives it the closest approximation to sunlight that it needs for all those things. And green light actually does stuff too. So there's a lot of papers about people testing different colored LEDs and to see how it changes the growth and the nutrient content. It's, it's a cool area. So a lot to say about that. Probably too much for the call. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. Now here's my, I'm gonna put you on the spot question. Okay. Give me 
the top three microgreens that you would say are, you know, the most three most nutritionally complete microgreens. Like what ones would you say if somebody's looking for the best all around microgreen, what would you say? Because I have two that I pick. And so I'm just curious if I'm even on the same level with somebody who actually studied the nutritional <laughs> content of them. Because I mean, yeah, I think um, just my own personal opinion is brassicas. So any of the broccoli, kohlrabi, um, any cabbage, any of those that are kind of in that family are usually really nutrient dense. And um, the, the the colored ones like purple sango radish and the, just like the ones that have a lot of the bright colors in them. Those are, they in the few studies that have been done, those keep coming out on top and yeah, there was actually a paper that came out not all that long ago where they actually developed a nutrient quality score. So if you say like which microgreen is the most nutritious, like based on what? So some of them have more calcium and some have more vitamin A, but you know, some of the other ones might not be. So this one uh, research group actually uh, kind of put all that together and came up with a way of scoring them in an absolute sense against each other. So like, mm -hmm. Uh, the ones that they said were the healthiest on their nutrient quality score was radish, basil, and something called roselle, which I've never heard of. So I don't know if any of your people grow that, but if anybody grows that. And then uh, rapini and purple kohlrabi uh, had the highest mineral content in one of the studies that I found. So huh, that's interesting. Yeah. I always say sunflower. I wonder well, where it tastes the best, I think. <laughs> I, sunflower does taste the best. And, I, you know, sometimes, you know, you read so many studies and you look at so many things you're at the end of the day, you almost get confused as to, well, was that truly a fact or was that something I read and it was a, a, an inference that I took from it? So that's good to know. Yeah, I like Sun, they, Sunflower they didn't even score that well, actually. It was like fourth from the bottom. It was like number six out of 10. So there's lots of sunflowers. They're so yeah, good. Yeah. I mean, I think, and it's also, it's relative. So they're all pretty nutritious. So it's not like sunflower's bad for you, you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> so well, it looks as if um, you could be like an excellent partner for some of these people to partner with when they're preparing any kind of technical material, right? So like, I know some people, like, you know, uh, I know we've talked about some of the other people who are building or creating other products that are not necessarily straight up live microgreens who have been in contact with you and I've been in contact with you about some things I'm working on. Um, so um, you do offer an opportunity for people to do that. And I believe it is through, I'll put the link here, but it's through your book, like a boss website. So basically, if you guys have more questions or if you're curious or you want Gina to explain something to you, um, obviously, you know, her time and her effort to, to research everything is, is definitely valuable to us. So um, you can book some time with her on book like a boss and I'll put the link here. Um, but but do that, see what see what you need to do. And if you wanna get with her on certain things, like she's happy to, to help out and get you guys what you need, but, um, you know, she's done an amazing job. Like you really did answer those questions well. Thank you, I'm glad. I know that scientists tend to ramble and use a lot of big words. So I try really hard to be relatable <laughs> um, and not in my head. I know that like half of my job is doing science communication. I run a website called SciWorthy.com. And so we do layperson explanations of scientific studies and we try to keep everything really unbiased and not put our own spin on it so that people who really want to learn can get into the details, but in a way that's understandable. Uh, I mean, even other scientists like reading SciWorthy because even if you don't study that particular subject, 
uh, but you're just a different science. Like maybe you're a physicist and you don't know anything about botany. You could read a Cyworthy article about a botany study and it wouldn't be full of botany jargon that you wouldn't know. So um, we try to, to do that. So that's on my mind all the time is just how to tell people about what all these studies are finding in a way that's going to be useful because uh, it's, it's definitely like, woo, it's out, it can be up there sometimes where, you know, even when I open up a paper for the first time, I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, it takes a lot of mental energy to read those things. So we have a bunch of graduate students that dig through the literature and they find, and they, they put their brain power and training to, to use to translate that for the rest of the world. So um, it's very helpful, especially um, when we were talking about too, is, you know, it, it's great to kind of break it down, but and to do what you do, I mean, you're basically breaking it down for what I consider, like, I wouldn't want to try to explain um, microgreens to children on, on any type of pure uh, science or uh, educational component, because I would be scared, and that's maybe just my fear, I would be scared I'd be wrong. And I don't want to put out information into this world, and that's just my personal preference. I don't like to put out information unless I'm pretty sure I'm not wrong. Um, so, and I like that on the website too, is you have a place where people can kind of get get with you even on just uh, very educational components to get that to the students if they're, if they're working on grow kits for the schools I know some of the growers definitely do that yeah there's a few things that I'm I'm offering because our, our, our organization blue marble space uh, we're, we're a nonprofit research Institute um, and we have a bunch of different initiatives and so we have a, a uh, research Institute we have Cyworthy, which is the site I just told you about we have this thing called the explainables which they train uh, scientists and uh, to, to talk to other professionals. So it's more of like a public speaking thing. We have so many different projects that I don't even know if I could list them all, but um, Green Space is one of the other projects and it's basically an indoor microgreen farm that we've run out of a storefront in central Pennsylvania. Uh, and our two really close friends are kind of like the, the heroes of that. They've been keeping the dream alive through the pandemic, running the, the shop and growing all the microgreens and getting the orders sent out. Uh, and then my husband and I are here in Delaware and we kind of do a lot of the, the other stuff like the business and educational things. And so uh, for that project, I developed a workbook to go with our grow kit and a bunch of nutrition fact sheets. And I write nutrition content for our website. So it's growgreenspace.org. You can check some of that out. And we'll put but a link to the thing I'm, too. I'm open to helping other farms do the science communication because I have that background and not all of the microgreen farms belong to a science nonprofit. So this is kind of like how we're helping the grower community. So I um, am willing to do like commissioned workbooks and lesson plans for people. Uh, it probably wouldn't be terribly cheap because those projects do take a lot of work, but uh, you can book a 30 minute consultation with me on the book me page. Uh, and we can discuss your project and I can come up with a quote and you can decide if that's something that works for you. Um, I can write content, so SEO content for your website uh, that's researched, uh, fact-checked about nutrition, um, just topics that you want, because I do that for us, so I'm willing to do that for others as well. Um, so you can, uh, I have uh, a couple different things where you can book for me to just edit and fact check something you've already written and you just book that by the hour. But if you want new content that's from scratch, then you'd have to do just a consultation with me and we can talk about what those needs are and then get a quote for you. So there's a lot of options. And then you can also just book an appointment with me to just ask all your questions. Um, and that's just by the hour. So it would be like this phone call, but very specific to your business. So that's 
something I'm willing to offer people, just anything I can do to help decipher scientific studies, um, help, you know, if you're looking for grants, I can help you understand what it is they're asking for, like um, just anything uh, related to the Food Safety Modernization Act, writing a farm food safety plan. Yeah, we talked about that too, yeah. Yeah, microbial testing, like all that stuff, because that was my master's project. So um, I'm so not a, a regular- So all this information yeah. available to them that they can basically yeah. to you and get so many things. And I hope that all of them do, especially when they have questions, because sometimes they ask me questions and I go, boy, I don't know who they're asking, but I don't know why they think I would know that answer. But I try to find out everything I can for people. Um, yeah, and I, I have access to a lot of scientists uh, and I, uh, you know, and even um, just people that I know that are really, you know, familiar with the FDA regulations and USDA. And, you know, I am not a regulatory expert, but I do know people who are. So if I can't answer the question, then I have people in my own professional network I can reach out to. Um, so I also have overseen our own green spaces, certified organic um, application three years now. So if you need help with figuring out how to get certified organic for your indoor farm, I've done this now a few times and can help you figure that out. Um, so yeah, any, any of that stuff, just the academic stuff that can sometimes be overwhelming if you haven't been immersed in it for a while. See, I think that's awesome. And I definitely, I love talking with you because every time I leave, I feel like I've learned so much. I even told my husband, I said, you need to watch this when I, when I finish talking with her. He's of course on a plane right now, but he's like, well, why? I was like, because he sometimes is wrong about things that he thinks he's right about because he done heard it from somebody else. And maybe you have a YouTube channel and maybe you do have a YouTube channel because I don't, but if you do, that's cool and all, but sometimes people say things on their YouTube channel that maybe aren't necessarily true. And then sometimes it becomes, like I said, sometimes you don't know where it came from. Like what, what made me think sunflower is the most nutritious one. I don't remember where I read it. I do remember, I, I must've looked it up at some point and felt confident and kept saying it. Now it's been a year and some time and I don't remember where it came from. And mm -hmm. I don't, so it's always good to, you know, have uh, someone like you. And I'm so glad I, I'm so glad I just said, I don't want to read any more articles today. And I'm just going to call somebody. Cause sometimes you just got to reach out, you know, like, I, I don't know. There are a lot of scientists that are willing to talk to people if they just reach out. I think, you know, even when I teach, uh, so I, I had a TA in grad school, so I taught microbiology students and I've also taught at community college. And one of the things I always love is when students actually have content questions, when they actually want to understand something and they're not just asking me when the test is or when something's due when they actually say, oh, well, what's the deal with this? And they're like, oh, I get to talk about science. So I think a lot of scientists like talking about science. And so it's not a bad thing to want to reach out. Um, not every person is nice and has the time for that, but a lot of them really do, especially if you go through, I think what's so great about agriculture, that, that field is that they have outreach built right into their culture through extension offices. So every state school, um, that has an ag department, has an ag extension office that is specifically for this. So people that have science training, uh, but also want to talk with farmers. So those are, those are perfect places to get help too. That's a good point. Well, Gina, I will let you go for the day and I will end this episode. I don't know if we were much longer than normal. I don't know. I couldn't even tell. I usually stick to like 15 minutes, so I definitely know we're longer than that. But I appreciate everything, Gina, and I look forward to continuing our relationship as we continue 
uh, looking at other options and, and what's going to be next. And um, I'm sure people will get back to us. I'm really glad that you had me do this. I, I hope that I can make some connections and help some people figure out the science. I hope so too. You're definitely helping me figure out science. So that that's <laughs> something. <laughs> awesome. Have a great day, you guys. Um, and I'll talk to you next week.